Thanks, Mike. Thank you all for being here this morning and joining us. It is It does make our heart glad, like George said in the welcome. When we gather together and we hear the word and we sing these praises to him. You know, as we, if you're just joining us for the first time or just you've been in and out a little bit, just as a reminder, we've been going through Genesis this fall. And this early section of Genesis, this, will, this is the last sermon from these first 11 chapters of Genesis, and next week will be Genesis chapter 12, and we'll get into the story of Abraham. And, and rightly understood, right, like these narratives and these stories are really, have really been tremendous, and they do really cause us to pause and reflect and to see what's going on within them and what they're pointing out about us and the world around us. Because if we really are rightly understanding Genesis, right, it's easy to look at the book of Genesis as the origins of everything in the world. Like this story, the point of, you know, this story is this is where we get language from. Or that every narrative thus far has just been to kind of show us where things came from. But actually, when we take Genesis in light of the whole Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, really these 11 chapters are the origin of, of all of our pain and suffering. And really, what, what is wrong with the world is the origin stories in the, contained in these chapters. Why do we experience what we experience, and what is the only possible hope that could ever save us from those pains, from that hurt and that disappointment? And you see this throughout, and we've seen it so far through Genesis 1 through 11, you know, the, the origin of why human relationships are so hard and challenging, why that dynamic between husbands and wives is so hard, why work is so unfulfilling at times, why there is such conflict and generational sin dynamics within families. And now here in the story of Babel, which again is one of the more well-known of the, of the narratives, we see really the origins of what's wrong within societies and in communities. Why there's so much pain and disappointment when we all gather together and try to live as one people. Right? Why is it? I was just reflecting on this the other day, Nextdoor <clears throat> app, you know, of like, man, why can nothing like that stay good? Right? Why does everything devolve into conflict and division? What is wrong with us that that is always the result of our community life and the when we live together with others? And so when we look at this narrative, right, if we, if we go through that story, and for many of us, it's a very familiar one. I mean, it's really a tremendous accomplishment that the people are doing. This is right after the flood, and they've all gathered together in one place with this great new technological advancement, it seems, right? And that's of why the author brings up brick and mortar and things. It seems that they've got this new technology in which they can build more efficiently and better. So just like a good modern would today, you know, if we have the technology, we should just use it and let's just build something with it. And they go to this great building project of building a tower. One people, one place, one language, Right, like the one common goal and purpose to do this together, seeking after security and a name, this place where they can accomplish something great. It's, it really is what all of us seek 
and really what all cities are after ultimately as well. Right? Like the, the hope of a people who can dwell together, live together with a common purpose, a common language, all things in common, striving for something that is good, right? Peace and security, significance, none of those things are in and of themselves bad. So what the author really is trying to pull out of us is this just general universal desire that we share with the people here in Genesis 11, but a very universal desire for a name and for a place. If we're all honest with ourselves and with our own life, right, we have been desiring significance from the moment we were born. Every young child wants someone to see them, to acknowledge them, to call them by their name. Right? How, how much power that is when someone knows your name, speaks your name, from childhood upward, to get a gold star, to get acknowledgement, to receive a letter grade in school that's good, to receive a present at your birthday, onwards into adulthood, to get the promotion, the acknowledgement from a boss, the acknowledgement and love from a spouse. We all want to be seen. We all want to be remembered. We want to be known. We want people to know our names. Excuse me. There's something very significant and powerful when people know our name and can speak it to us. And there's something hurtful when people don't know our names and we hope that they wouldn't know my name by now and they don't. It hurts because there is this intrinsic desire for us to be known and for our name to be known and ultimately to be known far after we're long gone, right? Which is really the desire here with this building of this tower and this name, that they could make a place where they would be known, a city for their namesake, which is different than earlier in the story when Cain builds a city, he names it after his son. Here, they're thinking of themselves, this generation, you know, the, the hope of immortality in that I could build some, we could build something that we will be known forever. My, my, I can be known, this generation will be known. And then that desire for belonging, for security, to be in a place where we are protected and cared for. I mean, this is, again, a universal desire within all of us. We all have longings to be in a place with people who share our common interests, who are like us, who agree with us, who we can work with, that there can be a place where we are known by them and we can work with them. And within that context, within that city, within this place, right, we'll be secure, safe, to be in a community with other people who know us, who get us, who are like us. Huh. I mean, that's, that's what, why people run to cities continually to, from then to now, right? The city has always been this place of refuge and a hope for I can make my name there, right? That, you know, if that kind of country person who leaves and goes to the city, right? You know, it's, it's to make a name for themselves and this hope of like, I could, I'll finally find a community, people like me in the city who will be like, and I can live with and I'll be amongst and this is gonna be great, but it doesn't work out. There's something wrong intrinsically with cities, and there's something wrong with us. And as we look at this story, right, like what's wrong, right, with what they're doing? 
I think, again, it's, it's easy for us to have just a cursory read. We just assume we know everything's wrong, like there's sin involved here somewhere. But what is wrong with building a tower? What's wrong with living in a city like this? What's wrong with pursuing unity, one people, one language? Why is God punishing them? Why does he come down and confuse their language? I mean, isn't this, in fact, what we all are trying to do and should try to do, is to build a place, to build a city that can reach to the heavens in which all people can gather together and experience that safety? And the problem in the narrative and how the author then is intending us to see that problem in the story is also the problem that's within us. The problem is not the things that they and we desire. Those things are good and, in fact, been promised from Genesis 1 on that you will have a place, that you will have a name, that you could live in a community of harmony and of love. These things are intrinsic in us and God-given in us. The desire to want to be known is not sinful or wrong. The desire to have significance, to live a life of significance, is not wrong. That's God-given, that desire for glory. That's how we were created. The desire to be in community with others is not wrong. That's how we were created, to live in a city, to live with others, to be united and have that common goals and love. The problem isn't within our desires. The problem is where we put our hopes for finding significance and finding community. The desire to belong, the desire for significance is universal. And within that, we see the turning of our hearts towards anything we think will provide it for us. But if we think of ourselves and we think of the, the characters in the story, right, it's that grasping for ourselves the good, which is this heroic grasp in all of these narratives thus far. The characters decide for themselves to reach out and to take versus receive and trust from the Lord. Eve stepped out and took for herself what was good in her mind. Noah reaches out and takes for himself what he thinks is good. And here, humanity decides for themselves to reach out and to take what is good. This hope for immortality, this hope for significance is turned to this building project will do it. This is the thing that will give me significance. What could make me be remembered? What will give us our safety? Building this city will bring me safety. Building this tower will bring me significance. This is the project. This will be successful. We'll find it in these things. Which is what we all, in turn, do. We're all looking for something to give us that significance, to give us that safety. So we turn and we look and we see the things, just like all these characters throughout all the narratives, 1 through 11, we see what is apparently good for providing our hopes. This fruit will provide you with what you need. This vineyard will provide you with what you need. This city, this tower will provide you with what you are looking for. We say, all right, I am in. 
if that's true, if that'll provide me significance, if that will give it to me, if that will give me security, I will go for it. And we're told, and we believe these things. So in our own lives, right, we, we turn to anything that we think will give us significance, make a name for ourselves. Most often, right, if we're honest with ourselves, we look to work for this. But depending on where you're at in your life, or it's, it's college before then, or it's athletics, or it's something. But I mean, whatever it is that I can make a name for myself, I'm all in. That's what I will invest in because that's going to be my means to make a name for myself. Because we, we long for that. We long to be known. We long to be remembered. And so we see within our lives the options for us. What is it that could make a name for myself? So I will go all in on that. I will work to the bone at this work because I'm trying to make a name for myself. I will go all in on being a parent because I will be remembered forever as the greatest parent because of how I raised my kids. You know, whatever work is right in front of us, we just throw ourselves into, right? Doing whatever the culture tells us is important and significant, we will just do it because we want to be remembered. We want to be significant. We turn to whatever the culture tells us gives us security and will keep us safe. We say, all right, I'm all in. If I got to build a tower to be safe, let's build this tower to be safe. If I need to find the right home, I will find the right home. If that means I need to move to this neighborhood, I will move to that neighborhood. And whatever it takes for me to have safety and security to secure this hope, I will do it. We turn to these things hoping that they will give us a name and they will give us a place to belong. It's what drove many of us in life to pick the colleges that we picked, to pick the careers that we pick, to pick the churches that we picked, to pick the place we live, to cities that we pick to live in, right? Because we think this will be the place, or at least we hope, this will be the place that will give me a name, this will be the place that will give me a home, this is going to be where I will find myself and where I will be known forever in this place. A constant striving and looking for what will make us matter and belong. That heroic, as Leon Cass said here, right, in Genesis 1 through 11, this heroic grasping for the good. You know, the, this hero through the narrative is always deciding for themselves what is good and going for it. And then suffering, the tragic consequences of that heroic choosing for ourselves what is good. Because as we are talking about that, we all have that universal experience of the desire to be known, to be significant, to live a life that matters. I can think of from young age myself of like, I'm going to, oh, I want to be in the military. I thought that was going to be a jet fighter. That was after Top Gun, you know. (laughs) Then I was going to be an archaeologist after Indiana Jones. I was really influenced by movies. And and then I was going to be a missionary pilot. After, you know, that's after I kind of converted at summer camp, you know, then I had to take those aspirations for work and make them more religious. So, so then I won't be a jet pilot, I'll be a missionary pilot, like Nate Saint, you know. And you, you just want to be, I want to live a life of significance. I want to matter. You know, that, that's universal in us. We want to live lives that really are, are significant. We want our names to be known. We want to matter. We want to have these places 
And while we all experience those same desires, God-given desires for significance, for glory, for security, and for place, we also all experience the result of our misplaced hopes. When that plan didn't work out, when that job didn't lead to the significance you thought it was going to lead to, when that place turned out to be not as great as you thought, when those neighbors turned out to not be of so much one mind as you thought you all were. And there's this pain and this disappointment and frustration and this divisiveness. You know, God's judgment in the story is incredibly gracious. And we really see that throughout Genesis 1 through 11. Again, it's a cultural misconception, right, of this like kind of angry God who is jealous and upset with his people and just kind of punishing them continually. when, When you see he doesn't allow them to have what they're after, graciously steps in and intervenes. Because if this works, right, oh, there will be nothing that will be impossible for them. Which is really a way of saying, right, that God couldn't stand to watch his creation's people live in a city without him, with everyone being their own God. People dwelling together without the Lord. Which is what's so convicting about our pursuit of our misplaced hopes. <laughs> because if I really think that that job is going to give me security, what I'm ultimately saying, right, if God let me go down that path, I will be a success in my work. Do I, would I rather be a success in my work without God? Or would I rather have God? And God steps into the middle of Babel and confuses the people and promotes this gift of diversity within humanity so that we can't achieve this goal. <laughs> that no work can satisfy us. No city, it's impossible to dwell together like this in any man-made city so that we won't achieve that selfish goal of a community in a city built on ourselves and our own selfish pride and arrogance, accomplishing for ourselves, making a name for ourselves without the Lord. What a gracious gift of God that he brings diversity into the world. It makes it hard for humanity to dwell together without him at its center. So that it pushes and drives us, that frustrations then that we all universally feel, the pain and the heart, heartache, the disappointment of cities, the frustrations we have with jobs, the frustrations we have in marriage, the frustrations we have in parenting, all of these misplaced hopes where we say, that's going to make me known, that's going to be it, this is how I'm going to make my name, this is how I'm going to secure my security and have my family's future secure. And then when it crumbles, it's in that crumbling, right, that God is pulling and calling his people to put their hopes back in him to find the true solution to our desires. Because when you look at this text, right, and if you're familiar with the text around it, and maybe you already have been kind of scanning chapter 12 and chapter 8, you've been looking. This is not an isolated story. 
And this, there's a significance to the naming that's going on here. This Hebrew word for name that they're trying to make for themselves is really the same root that Shem's name had before this. And then there's going to be a narrative right after this where God is going to promise Abram that he will make his name great. And this juxtaposition of a people all striving together to try to make a name for themselves compared to a God who wants to make a name for his people, to give a name. And then Abram will be renamed Abraham. God is going to be doing a lot of naming and giving names to his people and making people's names great. He doesn't command Abraham to go and make his name great. But he promises to Abraham that I will make your name great. That's very different. And we're supposed to see these contrasting ideas then as confronting to the reader, right? Of, whoa, have I been trying to make a name, right? Or am I receiving the name that God is giving? Do I trust in God and his salvation and his plan for significance and for security, for home, to satisfy those deep longings of our hearts? Or am I trying to satisfy those longings of my hearts myself by searching and reaching for what I think is good? Where do I direct my hopes to? The solution that's promised in the text is that God will provide the solution. God is going to provide this promised child, this promised Savior, who will come and who will relieve them, who will make them known, who will make their name known, give them this name, this fame and immortality that will be a blessing to the world through them. And this the promise of Genesis 1 through 11, the promise of all of Genesis is really clear. This child is coming who will rule forever and who will provide for them the longings of their heart. This need for satisfaction, the need for significance and place and security is going to be provided for by that Savior. And Abram is called to trust and wait for God to fulfill that promise. Just as Lamech was supposed to wait and trust for God to fulfill that promise, but he was so confident Noah was the one who was going to do it, and it turns out he wasn't. And Eve was confident that Cain was the one, and it turned out he wasn't the one who was going to be able to provide it. Which is us. We turn, you know, we've kind of given up the idea of thinking that our children are going to be the Savior in our lives. I mean, somewhat. Sometimes we do. But we sure think jobs and homes are going to be saviors. Surely this job will provide me the immortality that I am looking for. Surely this home will give me the rest and long satisfaction that I want. Surely this is going to be the thing that will bring me home and give me rest. Which is why the Christianity is such good news. Because this, the message of Christianity is not for us to have to become the hero and to find something to make our name great. It doesn't provide us a program. 
It doesn't provide us steps for how, do you want to be remembered forever? Here you go. Follow this step. Do these things. Do this work. But rather, we have a Savior who left his own home. Right? When you think of the life and death of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the true promised Savior and Messiah, the one that they are hoping for and waiting for in Genesis came. But he left his home. That's what scripture talks about. He left his home and is born away from it in this earthly home, a manger, right? A cave farthest from a home. Wanders around from place to place without a home for his head, right? This life of Christ, homeless. Crucified outside of the city. A sign of exile and rejection. He takes our place and experiences that exile, that alienated state that we all feel, that we all deserve. This being cast out that happens in the garden, that happens here at Babel. Christ takes that exile upon himself. You think of the original audience. They have just experienced this exile. They lost their home. They were taken away into captivity into Babylon. They get Babel. And now they are back, but this home is not their home. Christ knows that experience. He lived that experience on our behalf. He was cast out so that we can be brought home. In Jesus' death and resurrection, his death and resurrection is the ultimate exodus and the ultimate escape from exile When Jesus rises from the grave, he breaks the power of death and he becomes that living picture and foretaste of a new heaven and a new earth that will be our home. When we look at the resurrected Jesus, that's our home. That's what awaits us. This true home and our sense of it are hinted at right in all of the various homesicknesses we feel. Right, we look at when we feel homesick, it's a, it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's normal, and we should feel homesick, because this is not our home. It's the sense of home that steers us clear from all these false homecomings and idolatries that sit always tempting us in our lives. Right, we have that pain and disappointment constantly, That's intentional. Now, what we do with that matters and is significant. How we deal with our homesickness really reveals where we put our hope. When a group of people disappoints us, when a community disappoints, when a work disappoints, when a city disappoints, who do we blame for the disappointment, for the homesickness? If we're blaming the job, if we're blaming the home, if we're blaming the people, if only I had a different group of people, if only I found a different home, if only I found a different work, that will satisfy me. Right? That is the fool's errand. Right? You think that something can actually provide you a home in this world, but we were never meant to be home in this life. This world is not our home. Christ secured our home for us. And he points us to the home that he has for us. 
our response to the pain and the disappointments reveals a lot. That homesickness. If we're responding in anxiety, fear, anger, control, constant divisiveness and complaining, which is what our culture does continuously in the midst of the disappointment, the shock of, oh, I thought this person, I thought this group, I thought this work was going to... And then we just start complaining and we start blaming other people for the situation that we're in and, oh, I guess I never really knew them all along. If only they could get on board with this or change their view of that, then we could all get along and be unified together. If only... we. We really are putting our hope in that there is a place here in this life, in this place, that it will give me that, that significance. I, need, I just need to find it. And so you keep jumping to thing, to thing, to thing, to look for it. So we blame our work, we blame our family, we blame our communities. Versus this call, this biblical call that the readers have, that Abraham is going to have, that all of Israel is going to have, Finding their home in the promises of God. Because they are never going to be home in the Bible. (laughs) We will never be truly home until Christ returns. They were called to accept and embrace this homesickness. To trust in the promises of God. To enjoy the life that he has given us now to enjoy the work that he has given, to enjoy the communities that he has given, the families that he has given. Right? There is trust and enjoyment, generosity and worship instead of complaining and anxiousness and control and anger. Right? When I really trust God to provide for me, if I really believe that my home and my security, my significance is found in Christ and he has secured it for me, it can't change, it can't move, it's that's there, I now am free to live life with enjoyment, with pleasure, with worship, with generosity, because I don't need to protect my name. I don't need to protect my home. I don't need to make a name for myself because I already have one. I don't need to make a home for myself because I already have one, and it's coming. It replaces, the gospel replaces in us fear with love. And getting that replacement does require allowing God's word to speak to us and his promises to speak to us. The voice of God has to be the louder voice in our mind than the voice of our culture and the world and the city, what it provides. You know, that cultural narrative has been loud and strong for a long time. You take care of yourself. You do you. You, excuse me, you need to focus on yourself here. You need to do what's best for you. That narrative is powerful and strong. You should pick what makes you happy. You should do the things that are good for you. Oh, I need to hear the voice of the Lord because that voice ultimately is telling me if I don't do enough, if I'm not taking care of me, who will? If I don't grab mine, no one else is. If I don't get my life insecure. It won't ever be secure. I have to do this stuff. I have to work a certain type of work. I have to have a certain type of life. No one else is going to give it to me, so I better get it myself. That's the cultural narrative versus the hearing the voice of the Lord speak over his people that he has been speaking from Genesis 1 on. You are mine. 
whom I love. You are my child in whom I find no fault. Like, I choose you to be mine. My love is not changing. My position towards you will never change. I have called you and I have brought you home. Through the death of my son, right, I have brought you into the family. We have to see the cost of our salvation. We have to see the cost of bringing us home. And when we reflect on that, when we reflect on the love of God towards us and how he views us and how he has provided for us, it produces generous spirits. It produces love. It produces rest. Even in the midst of living in a Babel like we are, a city full of pride and arrogance and divisiveness, we as Christians have access to true rest. Even while we're never home, we have rest because we have Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love of us. Lord, we confess to you how often we turn to all of your good gifts and we turn them into ultimate gifts. Lord, how we really do look for our salvation in all of these areas, in all of these things. Lord, and we neglect you as the true source and author of our salvation. Lord, thank you for the gift of your judgment and of suffering that helps to draw us continually back to you. If we could do whatever we set our hearts to, what a terrible life and world this would be. Lord, thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us and that you are always calling us back and bringing us back to you. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us as a church, as families, as individuals in really trusting you and in trusting your provision for us. Lord, help us to hear your voice more clearly louder than the culture's voice, Lord, but help us to hear you as you speak over us that we are your children in whom you are pleased and that you have secured a future for us. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the truth of the gospel. Lord, let it settle deep within our hearts so that we can live in faith. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.